You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Here, we're gonna take the new truck for a spin. Well, bring it along. This concerns her too. Wait a minute, Doc. Well, what are you talking about? What happens to us in the future? We're gonna become assholes or something? No, 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 Marty. Both you and Jennifer turn out fine. It's your kids, Marty. Something has got to be done about your kids. <laughs> hey, Doc. We better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need. Roads. And welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 381 of this podcast. You'll have to excuse me. I've got a little bit of a tickle in my throat this morning. I... Just took a swig of coffee, and uh, not on purpose, accidentally, actually. Uh, it it kind of reminds me of Middle Eastern coffee, uh, Egyptian, Turkish uh, coffee. Lots of coffee grounds <clears throat> at the bottom. Uh, so it is both a liquid and a solid uh, liquid for most of the uh, experience, and then a solid there at the very end, surprise ending. But uh, today... <laughs> Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Back to the Future series, franchise of movies, and also just a hypothetical for those of us who are, oh, let's say mid-30s, early to mid-30s, around my age, and either married or unmarried. That should cover pretty much everybody. I don't think uh, there are any other categories that I'm forgetting. It pretty much should be two kinds of people in the world, those who are married and those who are unmarried, for the purposes of this discussion. And uh, just a a thought exercise, if you will, if we had the opportunity to go back in time to when we were 20, uh, what sort of a conversation would we have with our younger self based on what we know now? And... So we'll get into that. Uh, This actually, uh, I think, will be a lot of fun. But first, before we get into that, (laughs) I I think I will thank (laughs) my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, for having sent me a link this morning. Uh, I think you all will will thank uh, my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, uh, we're going to talk a little bit on the front end here about the latest from Tim Keller. Uh, I'm not uh, going to lie to you. I am not a Tim Keller fan. I think that 
He is a community organizer in church clothes, and uh, I don't agree with him on some very important things. Uh, Only the good Lord knows his heart, but when I am listening carefully to what it is that he's saying, I think I can get some idea, at least, and we are supposed to judge fruit by uh, whether it matches what God's Word says. Uh, We are supposed to judge trees by their fruit, and that means that you do consider the fruit, uh, whether it's good fruit or it's bad fruit. And that includes what we say, that includes what we do, that includes the implications of uh, what we are telling other people to believe and also to do or to not do. And so before we get into the Back to the Future thought exercise, uh, particularly with regards to marriage and singleness, uh, we're going to talk about Tim Keller's latest opinion piece at the New York Times. So to get us started, the link that JP actually sent me is to a site called threadreaderapp.com. And 18 hours ago, Tim Keller, who has almost half a million followers, uh, he posted on Threadreader the following, and I'll read this for you. Uh, Thread, I recently wrote about how churches should not destroy unity or fellowship over political differences. The replies show that many American evangelicals have no coherent understanding of how to relate the Bible to politics. Here's the original tweet. And so he's got his tweet up there, which, you know, thank you, Tim Keller, for putting that tweet uh, where I could see it, because if it were only on Twitter and you didn't embed it in this post here, I wouldn't be able to read it uh, because I'm suspended from Twitter. Uh, more on that again soon, but uh, suffice to say, my politics, my being a conservative, my my politics uh, have gotten me suspended and locked out of my Twitter account. So uh, thanks. His tweet is, churches must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel, which I agree with that. Uh, Churches should not destroy unity or fellowship over political differences. And that is a tweet of his from April 26th of this year. He's got 2,600 hearts and uh, 278 replies. And he continues, here are two biblical moral Norms. He's got moral in all caps. One, it is a sin to worship idols or any god other than the true God. Two, do not murder. If you ask evangelicals if we should be forbidden by law to worship any other god than the God of the Bible, they'd say no. We allow that terrible sin to be legal. But if you ask them if Americans should be forbidden by law to abort a baby, they'd say Yes. Now, why make the first sin legal and never talk about it and the second sin illegal and a main moral political talking point? At the very least, it shows a lack of knowing how to apply the Bible to politics. Okay, that's your opinion, Uh, Mr. Keller. Can I call you Tim? What manner of man are you that can summon up fire without flint or tinder? I am an enchanter. 
By what name are you known? There are some who call me... Tim? Greetings, Tim the Enchanter. Okay, so <clears throat> maybe Tim Killer is, is not that. Uh, Tim, Tim the Enchanter. But uh, if I may, uh, I'll just call you Tim. <clears throat> so Tim, is it the case? <laughs> is it the case that uh, we don't know how to apply the Bible to our politics? Now he says, and I continue, since we can't simply say if the Bible says it's sin, it should be illegal, how do we choose which morals to politically champion? Please don't say, I just want to see the Ten Commandments made law in society. That's too simplistic, and we don't do this already. The Bible tells us that idolatry, abortion, and ignoring the the poor, uh, typo there, Tim, are all grievous sins, but it doesn't tell us exactly how we are to apply these norms to a pluralistic democracy. Okay, so so the overarching... Uh, Let's pause here. This is me. This is Garrett, not Tim, for just a moment. The overarching uh, principle here is that we need to maintain our pluralistic democracy. And that is an assumption that should be questioned, uh, in particular, given the uh, attributes, which we would say a pluralistic democracy must embody and uh, be defined by. So that, that is not a foregone conclusion. That is an assumption uh, on the front end that uh, we must do that. And uh, also, too, earlier when you said that we shouldn't just make the Ten Commandments uh, the law of the land, uh, that also, uh, when you say that's overly simplistic, that, al that also is an uh, assumption You've made an assumption there, and you're assuming that we all just need to readily agree with that, because why? Right? Uh, please unpack that for us and show your work. But moving on. We are to help the poor, but the Bible doesn't tell us which political strategy, high taxes and government services versus low taxes and private charity to use. Actually, actually, Tim... I disagree. I, I disagree. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep interrupting you, but I disagree. Uh, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. When was the last time you saw anyone cheerfully paying their taxes? Uh, it, and, and were they being genuine or were they just trying to score political points? Okay. It, we are told we are not to coerce. We are given that example, and we are also told that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. Coercive extraction of wealth, and then the government redistributing that wealth to buy votes is not charity. That is not uh, biblical. You, you can't support that from the biblical text as an obedience, as obedience to biblical principles with regards to these things, with, with regards to our responsibility to the poor. And it is a false choice to say either we are going to be 
saying wormed and filled, or we're going to have extractive, uh, confiscatory tax rates for people that we think uh, make too much money, supposedly. However, we come to that, it does not follow. So what you're what you're trying to introduce here again is another assumption that the Bible doesn't speak to this. And you could say, well, it's debatable exactly how we apply some of these principles, sure, but there's no denying that the Bible does speak to whether our having a responsibility to the poor is to be coercive and, uh, and whether the Lord wants a cheerful giver, whether the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But let's move on. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. I know abortion is a sin, but the Bible doesn't tell me the best political policy to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which political or legal policies are most effective to that end. Now, here I would just uh, briefly call this out as a whole lot of fluff and nonsense. The Bible doesn't tell us what the most effective way to stop murder is. Well, here's a clue. When one side is saying that murder is a right, you have the right to commit murder, and that anybody who tries to stop you or even discourage you is a hateful bigot who is literally uh, trying to bring about the real-life version of The Handmaiden's Tale. Anybody who tries to stop you from committing murder is an oppressive misogynist. Uh, and, and then the other side, the other end of the political spectrum is saying, we should make this illegal, and we should prosecute those who try to commit murder or who actually do commit murder. We should punish them, and at a minimum, we should not be taking people's tax dollars and then using those tax dollars to support and fund and underwrite uh, murderers who we are also protecting. Uh, when, when you have those two kinds of options, you can't continue on this charade of saying, well, it's so nuanced, right? It's so, you know, no, 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 no. If you can't figure out that, if, if your Christian faith it's just totally uh, forlorn, you know, oh, I don't know, like we'll flip a coin maybe uh, when it comes to, you know, like let's say going with the abolition perspective where it's illegal, like outlaw it, like, oh, I don't know, every other kind of murder is illegal. When that's one position and then the other position is and I quote, abortion is holy ground. Uh, I, I don't think you can pretend that this is so up in the air and fuzzy. I think you want it to be because you don't want to vote Republican. And you don't want your parishioners to vote Republican. And you don't want the pastors and theologians and professors all around this country who think you're an intellectual to follow you don't want them to vote Republican, and you don't want them to tell their parishioners and their students <clears throat> and their peers to vote Republican. 
That's what this is really about. It's very, very obvious. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Oh, well, then maybe you shouldn't take every bit of extra that people have and redistribute it like a communist. And, and maybe also, too, uh, when the Lord says, thou shalt not murder, and that hands that shed innocent blood are on his short list of things that he hates and detests that are abominable to him, maybe just maybe the political party that is for abortion on demand, even in some states now, up to 28 days after birth? What? Did I hear that right? I need to dig into that and make sure that I know that right before you go quoting me on it. But when one side is saying abortion is a legal right, you cannot vote for that. Woe to those who exchange bitter for sweet, who call good evil and evil good. You, you, can't, you can't say there's no distinction or no difference. What you would be more honest to say is that you wish there wasn't. You wish you could just vote any way you please because what you really want is you really want to vote Democrat and you want your parishioners and the people who respect you, the people who listen to you, to vote <clears throat> Democrat. But continuing on. The current political parties will say that their policy most aligns morally with the Bible, but we are allowed to debate that, and so our churches should not have disunity over debatable political differences. Okay, now I'm going to stop again. I'm sorry, like I can't even get through a sentence at a time because there's so much wrong with what you're saying, Tim. There's so much wrong here. No, the Democrats don't say that their policy most aligns morally with the Bible. They don't say that. In fact, increasingly, they don't even carry on the pretense that there's a biblical requirement to love your neighbor and therefore you should affirm same-sex unions and gay marriage. They're certainly not keeping up a pretense with regards to grooming children in public schools when it comes to gender theory. Uh, the IRS, when it gets nitpicky about an application for a 501c3 status from an organization that wants to promote biblical literacy with regards to our political process, when they look askew at that, because as they recognize, folks who are more biblically literate vote conservative, vote Republican. Our own government knows that they can't keep up the game of pretend. And for that matter, I don't know if this is news to you, Tim, but people lie, right? Satan quotes scripture. So, you know, you, you can't just plead ignorance here. You can't pretend to be so super, super sophisticated and intellectual when it comes to the nuances of the Republican position and just picking it apart and being extra, extra critical with regards to conservatives. And then... Just pretend that you know nothing when it comes to the Democrat side and then claim a moral equivalence thereby. You can't do that. That is not you being a good, godly influence. That's you being a blind guide and a hypocrite. And just quite frankly, I would tell this to your face, but I think you're a closet communist. I think you are a radical. I think you are a community organizer in vestments. And I think that you are telling Christians that we really can't tell 
because you are part of this erosion. You're an active agent in the erosion of Christian conviction in this country, all in the name of unity. You know, if unity is all that matters, then why aren't we all Unitarians? Now, he says, of course, churches must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel. But what, what else do you say when one side claims to be for the gospel and yet is going to turn a blind eye to abortion? Now, you're saying that it's a moral evil, but also that it should be legal and that there's something suspicious or unspiritual about conservatives wanting it to be illegal and also wanting their tax dollars to not go to paying for it. And riddle me this as well. Okay, so so which is it? You're saying that the Bible tells us to take care of the poor and that within the possibility, the list of possibilities for how we might do that, the government, particularly run by Democrats, is going to tax me and then take my tax dollars and take care of the poor. And that will qualify as me having. I, I get, I get credit for having taken care of the poor indirectly if my government takes my tax monies and uses those to fund uh, welfare programs. But what about if a Republican, if a conservative says, all right then, in the interest of consistency, if the government is taking my money and then using my money to teach children that they should be transgender, well, then I bear responsibility for that as well. If the government is taking my money and then using that to subsidize or promote or protect abortion, then that's also on my slate. My slate is not clean so long as that is something that is being done with my tax money as well. You can't have it both ways. You cannot. That is cognitive dissonance. Those are not compatible perspectives where you have your cake and you eat it too. You say, when it comes to taking care of the poor, I get credit if I'm taxed and my tax dollars go to it. But if I'm taxed and my tax dollars go to promoting sexual immorality in children, teaching them godlessness, and also aborting them if possible, when possible, when convenient, that's none of my business. No. No. You're wrong And not only are you wrong, but you are extremely dangerous and no one should listen to you. No one should be following you. You are not trustworthy. Continuing on. The current political parties will say that their policy most aligns morally with the Bible, but we are allowed to debate that. And so our churches should not have disunity over debatable political differences. Okay, so you say we should not have disunity. What about Paul and Barnabas going separate ways over the question of whether to take John Mark? Sometimes you do go your separate ways over a debatable matter, clearly. Also, too, if you're saying we should not have disunity, how was a major disagreement, and we just talked about this this past Wednesday in youth group, how was the disagreement over whether Gentile believers should be circumcised, how was that handled in the early church? Was it handled by saying, oh, we can just have everybody making absolutely contradictory claims 
and everybody can be right. And let's just debate it. But don't be disunified. But let's not be clear on this. Let's not take a stand. Circumcision party or the Apostle Paul, it's all the same, really. Let's be unified and let's not be disunified. No. No. For that matter, you're one to talk when you are chief among those mainstream evangelical leaders who has questioned whether somebody can even be a Christian, certainly whether they are a mature Christian who should be listened to if they are not woke, if they don't subscribe to CRT, if they don't buy into what you think about systemic racism in this country, if they don't agree with you and your woke politics, your woke New York City politics to you are a fair measuring rod for the maturity or lack thereof of those who claim to be Christians in this country. And yet that standard, you want conservative Christians in this country to abandon when it comes to saying, oh, you you want LGBTQ education for my children and you claim to be a Christian? I don't think you're a Christian. By your fruits, I'm going to judge you, and you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Tim continues, I have also never told anyone they should vote Democrat or Republican. Okay, yeah, but you're being you're being disingenuous here. I'm sorry. Like I'm going to pick every sentence out here that is troubling. You've never told Christians publicly or privately who they should vote for, you say. You've never told anyone they should vote Democrat or Republican. No, what you've done has been arguably worse. Is you, you have diluted down the positions of the left to their core elements, and you've muddied the waters, and you have claimed that the scriptures are not clear on these things, and you've implied that conservative Christians who say, thus saith the Lord, and here's book, chapter, verse, and this does speak to the question at hand, and the policies of the left are not just godless, they are contrary. They are rebellious against God's authority. You you have cast aspersions on conservative, theologically conservative, politically conservative Christians in this country. Now, you continue. I believe all Christians should be active in politics, but it is unwise to identify Christianity with any particular party. For Morrissey opinion, how do Christians fit into the two-party system? They don't, he says. He concludes with sigh. People are focusing on the example. Abortion is physical harm and not the principle. You can do the same object lesson about gay marriage. Why codify that moral in law and not others? Now, here's a, here's a big question. Why codify that moral in law and not others? Well, who's saying we shouldn't codify some of these other laws, some of these other morals uh, into law? I mean, that, that is the, the assumption <clears throat> is that we shouldn't, and you're just kind of taking that for granted. Now, I'm not saying we should make everything that is moral uh, a, a matter of law, 
I don't believe that. Uh, Nor, for that matter, is the Old Testament law, God's law, uh, you know, across the board prescribing the same penalty and punishment for everything that is commanded if it is disobeyed or for everything that is prohibited if it's done anyways. Not everything carries with it the death penalty, for instance. And also, not everything can be just a fine paid if you're found to be guilty. You know, some things, yeah, just pay a fine, and that's what it is. But there's no getting away from the fact that all law is a, a moral statement. And for that matter, to make certain kinds of murder legal is a moral statement. And for that matter, to make murder illegal is a moral statement. And for that matter, how on earth can you expect me to give you the time of day on, hey, we should take care of the poor because that's a moral imperative. But yeah, I'm really not sure whether we should be legally allowed to murder or not. You know, Yes, the taking care of the poor, that's such a moral imperative that you shouldn't have a choice but to give your tax monies to Democrats, but actually literally murdering an innocent child. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we should stop people from being able to do that. Really. Hey, you're confused because you want to be confused. I, I, I feel like I feel like being a, a father, being a parent, is coming to mind here very much. Where, you know, my children, <clears throat> it's remarkable how, how children can do this. And, and Tim, uh, with respect, you're, you're being very childish about this. Uh, not childlike, you're being very childish. But, you know, if you even just barely mention the possibility that maybe, just maybe, we'll get some ice cream later, you just breathe it, even just as a joke. Even just as a, you know, hey, if it works out, your children will remember that for the rest of their lives. I, you know, a month from now, if you don't go get ice cream because it just didn't work out, something else came up, they will bring it up. Remember, a month ago, you said we were going to get ice cream. You promised, right? But <laughs> you can give a five-minute monologue about exactly precisely how to clean their room and how everything needs to be picked up off the floor. And at the end of it, you can be like, okay, now what did I just say? Hmm? What? Is your room clean? Yeah. Yeah, it's clean. Um, no, it's not. <clears throat> your trash can's overflowing and tipped over. Your dirty clothes and your clean clothes are all mixed together in the corner. Your bed's not made. What is this smeared on the mirror? You. Please get the Windex. Right? And, and all of a sudden, their mental acuity is <laughs> greatly compromised. But if it's ice cream, boy, howdy, they, they know how to remind you. Yeah, that's what this is like. The Republicans, you, you want to basically approach this like, I'm telling my daughter to clean her room. Well, I mean, really, like, who knows what is clean? Like, uh, let's not be disunified over what a clean room is not isn't. I mean, it's really relative, right? 
you know, and as long as you don't wear a tie, you wear a suit jacket, uh, but no tie underneath, and you smile in just so, just such a way, you know, as as long as you come across as you know even keeled and at ease, and you you sprinkle in strategically calls for unity. You wanted Joe Biden to win. I'm pretty well convinced of that. You didn't want the bad orange man to win. You did want Joe Biden to win. And your calls for unity here in the church uh, carry about as much weight in my mind as Joe Biden's calls for unity. You know, listen to the State of the Union address that Biden delivered several weeks ago. You know, he'll give one line that we can't help but all agree with. And then the very next sentence is as divisive as possible. But then he's going to cap it all off with calls for unity. No, you want unity on your terms. And those terms are arbitrary and nonsensical and ungodly and wicked and foolish. So, yeah, I'm for robust debate. Just so long as you don't say that this is imperative and that's necessary and this is a must and we can't do this. No. No. As far as I'm concerned, this is very disingenuous. And I would read for you the New York Times opinion. You know, he claims uh, in 2018, and that's what he linked to, uh, the historical Christian position on social issues don't match up with contemporary political alignments. He claims that. But uh, you need to get out more. You need to dig in to the Reformed conservative tradition. You want this to be ambiguous more than it actually is. You know, if we don't, here's the bottom line. If we don't have any idea whether murder should be legal, but then you want to come and tell me that there's somehow a moral imperative that is abundantly clear that we should let all the world's illegal immigrants into our country. And if I don't agree that I'm an ugly, awful sinner, who maybe not even saved. You want to tell me abortion, you know, yeah, maybe it should stay legal. We can debate that one. Yeah. But you want to tell me that there's absolutely no debate. And if I want to have a debate over systemic racism and wokeism in the church, um, you know, I maybe don't even understand the gospel. Yeah, okay. You want unity around the gospel on your terms, which just so happen to be leftist terms. Thank you, next. Moving on to the main topic I want to talk about in today's episode. (laughs) Thank you again, J.P. Chavez. Uh, (laughs) Imagine with me, if you will, getting in a time machine, going back, when you were 20. For those of you who are uh, not already past 20, that is. You know, for any, every, anybody and everybody who's already uh, over 20, this applies. If you're under 20, then I guess just enjoy the thought exercise as a passive participant, not an active participant, as an observer. Uh, but imagine with me, if you were to jump in a time machine... And go back, in my case, to the age of 20. 
you know, in my case, when I turned 20 years old and 20 days, my wife and I said, I do, we married. And if I were to go back and talk to 20 year old me, would I tell younger me to do some things differently? Would I change how I approached certain things? Would I have changed my timing on certain things? I just published yesterday an episode on one of the most recent chapters of my forthcoming book on marriage. Uh, One of the most recent chapters that I wrote has to do with the declining divorce rate. And as I make clear in that episode and in that chapter, the declining divorce rate, it seems like better news on the front end than it actually is because the declining divorce rate conceals the fact that young people just aren't getting married at all. They're not getting divorced because they're not getting married. But those who are getting married, they're waiting until they're 30 if they're men and they're waiting until they're 29 if they're women on average. And it used to be not so. It used to be decades ago that people got married, young people got married when they were close to 20. Um, you know, the age that my wife and I got married at is so young, but it used to not be so. And so if I were to go back in time, I'm thinking to myself, would I tell younger me to wait a few years to get married until we had finished our bachelor's degrees, until Lauren had gotten her nursing degree, until I'd gotten whatever I was going to settle on. Otherwise, I ended up getting an associate's degree in business administration, almost to have my bachelor's, but I dropped out because it just wasn't worth it and I had too much else going on. We had too much else going on. And I frankly don't need it. Now, by contrast, uh, I know a number of young men about my age who are not married and have never been married. Uh, They're not divorced. They never got married to begin with. And a number of them have had, you know, on again, off again, dating relationships but they don't work out for whatever reason. I'm not privy to the details in most of them. I just know they are single. And I I think to myself along these lines, if they had the opportunity to go back and talk with 20-year-old them about some young gal that they knew, if they had it to do over again, would they have encouraged 20-year-old them Would they now, if they could jump in a time machine now, would they encourage 20-year-old them to more aggressively pursue finding a wife? Do they regret, you know, maybe like they're not going to aggressively pursue now, but do they regret not having gotten married? And should they? You know, maybe by the same mechanisms that contributed to their being single now that they wouldn't know what to do differently if they went back 10 years, 15 years. But I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of half a dozen young guys my age who seem so much younger, honestly, too. They seem so much younger than I feel by virtue of the fact that they are unmarried, they have no wife, they have no children. <clears throat> and I mean no offense to you guys who are listening who are about my age. You know who you are, but you're about my age and haven't gotten married, haven't had children. You know, I I realize there's plenty of things that come up and it might not all be up to you. And and it might not even be all up to us. But 
the whole point of my thought exercise here is I dare say that with at least some of the guys that I have in mind here from conversations I've had with them, from things I've heard them say, I think that odds are very high, and certainly much higher, that they would go back and counsel 20-year-old them to be more aggressive in pursuing a wife, finding a wife, pursuing a wife. Lock it down. Let's get this done. (laughs) And for my part, I would not go back in a time machine to 20 years old and tell young me to wait until I was 24, 25, certainly not 30. You know, think of this. Consider this. By the time I was 25, our four oldest sons had all been born. I moved back to my home state of Montana at 25 to get into the oil and gas industry, which I've now been in for 10 years. And we had four kids when I moved back to Montana at 25. We had four kids, four sons. Those four sons, I am very proud of. Uh, Sometimes, you know, being young men in the making such as they are, uh, they can have their moments of being obnoxious and immature. But so can I, for that matter. Uh, But I, I wouldn't trade them for the world. I would not trade my four older boys for four years more of schooling. I just wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. And such as it is, we should all be content with whatever lot has been dealt to us by the Lord. Uh, but, you know, my point obviously is not that, hey, listen here, I just happen to have a time machine. I happen to have a DeLorean parked in my garage. Anybody wants to stop by, you're welcome to borrow it. No, that's not my point. My point is, moving forward, have we learned the right lessons? Because I I am, I call it silly if you will, but I, I am concerned that the same kinds of things that I observed when I went to college and I saw... A lot of my classmates seeming to have little to no curiosity whatsoever about the subjects that they were studying to pass tests for. They wanted to get good grades on, but it was all just numbers to them. It was a numbers game. I put in this number of hours. I put in this number of days. I put in this number of correct answers on the quiz. I get this number for a GPA back out. I get to advertise to potential employers that GPA when I apply for jobs with their companies. After I graduate with this piece of paper, I get this job with this trajectory that pays me this salary, and I work that job at that salary for this many years, And then I am able to afford this house in that part of town or this part of the country and this vacation to that country or this missions trip to that country or this car that I want, this lifestyle that I want. But a whole lot of it is predicated on me, 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 myself, me, myself, and I, and I don't mean to pile on or pour lemon juice in anybody's eyes or rub salt in any wounds or anything like that. But so much of 
the selfishness, it's not, it's not that everybody's coming by it honestly. I think a lot of it is just we're swimming downstream. We're swimming with the current. And because the rest of the fish around us in our school of fish are swimming in that direction, we are just following the crowd. And we think, okay, well, there's strength in numbers. It's a herd mentality. <clears throat> there's a groupthink component to it. There is safety, security, success, accolades, happiness, profit in this direction because that's the direction that people are going. And what if maybe just maybe the declining birth rate, the declining marriage rate, and yes, okay, sure, the declining divorce rate, but what if all three of those things together actually are spelling really big trouble because we encouraged a whole generation or two or three of young people to put their personal home economy first. And then at the same time, inflation eroded their capacity to check those boxes that we told them, that older generations told them they have to check. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, I just, I think there's a cruelty to pricing young people out of the market when it comes to getting married and having children. I think that there's a cruelty to that and there's a selfishness to it on the part of older generations. You know, call me sick and twisted if you will, but I sometimes think <clears throat> that the fact that we do not live forever is a great mercy. That If not for that, the human race would have been extinguished a long time ago. Because some of these people who have much longer lifespans and are able to keep themselves afloat for longer, they've been corrupt for decades. They found a system and a network that gets them into power and keeps them in power. And that is the beginning, middle, and end of what is important to them. And the rest? The rest is just whatever it takes. It's Machiavelli and Saul Alinsky and Edward Bernays, and just abject dishonesty. If they have to sell out the younger generations and live off of them, and sacrifice their future for their own short-sighted, short-term gains, so be it. They have Mao Zedong's mentality on this. Mao, when he started to go downhill, you can read about this in Mao, The Untold Story, got a copy of it sitting on my shelf right over here. But Mao was slipping and his rivals in the CCP were starting to sharpen their knives to take him down because he had been ruthless, just absolutely ruthless, even to people who were loyal to him, but were starting to kind of get a name for themselves, build up credibility for themselves. He was not going to have them competing for the limelight. He would destroy them just for the fun of it just on the off chance that they might use that power and influence they were accumulating to undermine his authority. Not even if they were, but just if they might, possibly. He would just routinely, randomly destroy people. And when I say destroy, I mean destroy them and their whole families. He would, according to the author of Mouth the Untold Story, he would sit in his own private home movie theater and he would watch for the fun of it. Videos of people in some of these villages in China being surrounded, 
cursed at, destroyed psychologically by their community, being hit, struck, pushed, shoved, kicked, beaten to death. Being destroyed psychologically first, then physically. And this was a random process. It was okay to do this to these people. He seems to have even derived a a kind of sadomasochistic pleasure from watching it. And the reason for that was, well, better them than me, right? He felt powerful because he was able to destroy these people. And he knew he had set these things in motion. You know, the great leap forward. I, I would just love to know what Tim Keller's response would have been if he were a pastor in China during Mao's rise to power, during Mao's rule of China. You know, the great leap forward. Well, the Bible tells me that, yeah, we're supposed to provide for the poor and unfortunate in our country, but it doesn't tell me whether we're supposed to ship hundreds of millions of people's food to other countries or not. You know, it doesn't tell me whether, you know, I'm, I'm really not sure. We shouldn't be disunified over that. But again, though, I mean, you, you get these Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden types who they're clinging stubbornly to power and doing awful things that really amount to selling out future generations of Americans. The, the American young person in their 30s and their 20s in their teens and younger, is now shackled and burdened and weighed down probably for the rest of their lives by the decisions made to keep these people in power, to make them feel relevant, to make them feel powerful. And they don't mind who they destroy along the way. And yet, I think that far too many conservative Christian types wanting to advocate responsibility, have looked at these trends and have said, well, when I was a kid, we worked the night shift. We worked part-time on the side and we, you know, we paid our way through college. Yeah, also, when you were my age, college cost one-fourth or one-fifth what it does now, adjusted for inflation. Now, for me to pay my way through school, I wouldn't be able to work 10 hours a week, 15 hours a week, and have some spending money on the side to go see a movie and go out to eat and all that kind of stuff too and put some savings away. No, now I'd have to work 40 or 50 hours a week in order to pay my way through school and I'd be eating ramen and I would still have student loan debt. So don't don't tell me that this is the same. Don't pull that, you know, uh, back in my day, we used to walk barefoot to school, uphill, in the snow, both ways. No, 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 no. Your generation was irresponsible. You older folks, your generation was irresponsible. It doesn't mean everybody who's older than us was irresponsible, but by and large, they were the ones who put the jokers into power, who we still have desperately clinging to power. Even when we can't even keep up the pretense at home or abroad, that these people can finish a sentence, they're still making the decisions. And then you get the likes of a Tim Keller who has a radical past 
John Harris at Conversations That Matter has done some really good videos and podcast episodes on that if you want to check that out in more depth. But I mean, you, you just you look at the excuses that are made, the moral equivalence that is drawn. It is disingenuous. It is dishonest. It is community organizing. Tim Keller, he, he so much reminds me of Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. He so much does. And I realize that you're going to have the unity crowd saying, oh, no, no, no. Whoa. But unity cannot just be this abracadabra cure for critical thinking and closer examination, calls for diligence and wisdom. We are warned that false teachers will come into the church like wolves in sheep's clothing. We are warned that savage wolves will come into the church trying to tear the sheep apart. We are warned that there will be false teachers and false teaching and that it should be corrected and that people should be warned to only teach what accords with sound doctrine. But the unity crowd, if they race to that punchline and they say, no, no, we have have to have unity on the basis of the gospel, but their gospel is all mixed in with leftism. And also they say, oh yeah, we should all be politically engaged. But you conservatives, yeah, you guys, you're the divisive ones. No, 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 no. I'll tell you what it's like. It's like the left freaking out right now over Elon Musk buying Twitter and saying that he wants it to actually be a platform for free speech. And what the left is doing is they're saying, oh, no, no, we haven't been censoring anybody, but Elon Musk, he's going to allow white people, straight white men, to go on Twitter and use the N-word. That's all he wants. Um, You're worried about Twitter being ruined because the game has been rigged. And now you're slandering somebody who's going to allow the other side to actually say their piece. And in the church, this takes a very different form. But the unity piece is, it's a very manipulative, all too often, a very manipulative way of trying to censor conservative objections to leftist uh, inroads that are being made by the likes of a Tim Keller, by the likes of a Paul David Tripp. You know, when Paul and Barnabas disagree over something as trivial in our view, in my view, certainly, as whether to take John Mark with them on their missionary journey, they go their separate ways. They have a sharp disagreement, and then they go their separate ways. And that's not the end of the world. And it's certainly not the destruction of their Christian testimony that they're going in separate ways. They each do what seems best to them. They go their separate ways. When the circumcision party comes to town, it is not no big deal. And in the interest of unity, you don't say, well, the circumcision party is allowed to take shots at Gentile Christians and Paul. But if Paul talks back to them, if Paul says in Galatians 5.12, 
I wish that those who trouble you about circumcision would just go the whole way and castrate themselves, emasculate themselves, cut themselves off, depending on your translation. When Paul says that back, we need to remind him that it's important for us to be unified. That's exactly what Tim Keller's game has been for a long time. And here he is again. He's doing it again. And if anybody disagrees with him and calls him out for his disingenuous partisanship, his moral equivocating, if anybody calls him out for it, then he starts in with this very, I'm sorry, but a very passive-aggressive and not even terribly passive accusation that we don't know how to apply the Bible to politics. Many American, many American evangelicals have no coherent understanding of how to relate the Bible to politics. Says the guy whose church in New York City was telling unvaccinated members that they could worship up in the balcony, but the main floor was only going to be for those who had gotten the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, period. You disagree on this, becomes a political issue. You guys sit up there. We shouldn't be disunified. But what you want is you want unity on your terms. Just saying unity, 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 that that doesn't make you right. Because again, if we... If all of the scripture concerning our Christian faith and testimony were to be boiled down to unity, we would not have had a Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church wouldn't have split from Eastern Orthodox Church. Yeah, you, you say we must not maintain unity at the expense of the gospel. But how we define our terms here is every bit as important as when... Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian science proponents define their terms. Yes, you said Jesus. That does not mean you can go saying whatever you please about Jesus and it's all the same. That applies to you as well, Tim Keller. It does. But then you get you get these young people. And, and here's the trouble. I, I have cousins who have been taken in by the likes of Tim Keller. And they'll share a Tim Keller message, video. This happened years ago. They went off to college. They went off to university. And they were indoctrinated by their classmates, by their professors, by the material. And and to be honest, that too, that's another way in which their parents have set them up. I'm sorry to say, a lot of... Christian parents, a lot of conservative Christian parents who have told their kids to go with the flow when it comes to going to college, waiting to get married, waiting to have children until they've established themselves in their career. They have basically put their children in a position where they are also going to be much more likely to go with the flow politically and theologically. Once you start just letting your generation do your thinking for you, whatever they're doing, that's what you're going to do as well on these pragmatic, practical things, because that's what you're told is necessary for you to network, for you to make the right connections, for you to get a job, for you to keep your job. I have to get with the program on these talking points. Critical race theory, I'm on board. 
that's a requirement now to be a part of this ministry or to be in good standing with my employer or in my community. I'm, I'm a missionary in this leftist city, at this leftist university. Well, these kids aren't even going to listen to me at all if they find out I vote Republican. And Tim Keller is telling me we got to have unity on the basis of the gospel. And who really knows? You know, I have run into this with my cousins, not all of them by any means. But here's the crazy thing is, I mean, by virtue of opening the gate and letting these wolves in, they say we should be able to have a debate about these things. What they really mean is you should accept that I am saying some of these things that are not debatable are debatable. What they don't mean is if you start challenging me on some of my assumptions, when you start disagreeing with me, when you start saying, no, that is wrong, that is objectively false, and as a pastor, as a teacher of pastors, as somebody who trains pastors, as somebody who claims to be an authority on these things, you are held to a higher standard. You are not an innocent victim when you get called out for it. You don't want that kind of a debate. In fact, you say, When you get called out, many American evangelicals have no coherent understanding of how to relate the Bible to politics. You know who you would get along with? You would get along with Kristen Kobes Dumez, author of Jesus and John Wayne. You two are two peas in a pod. She's very concerned about mainstream American evangelicals having voted overwhelmingly for Donald Trump and for for Republicans and for... (sighs) Decades having this, as she views it, toxic masculinity conception of what it means to be a man, this patriarchal, degrading view of what it means to be a woman, believing in traditional gender roles. And then she points out scandal after scandal. I did a book review on this. If you want to go back and check it out, I did a book review podcast episode. You can find it pretty easily at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com. Look under the category books, or you can just search at the bottom of the page. There's a little search bar. But she highlights scandal after scandal after scandal in mainstream evangelical Christianity over the past 75 years, concluding thereby that we're all just a bunch of hypocrites. We clearly don't have it figured out. We're pretending we're for conservative values, but we're just as wicked is all the people that were decrying, again, with the moral equivalence. She's especially worked up about conservative Christian, conservative evangelical leaders and movements. But here's the crazy thing. I don't think it is, in the majority of cases, as much the conservatives themselves who are in and of themselves led astray I think it is when we try to compromise with the theological liberals who also are for social liberalism, political liberalism, but it's not even really liberalism either. It's leftism. We try to compromise on some of these things that are taken for granted. And we say, oh yeah, well, in the interest of unity, I'm going to try and give some common ground 
affirmations to some of what you're saying. And then meanwhile, that starts eroding inwardly their own convictions about what is proper. And then come to find out years or decades into their ministry or their leadership position, they've been carrying on this double life, doing these things behind the scenes. And we're all scandalized. Well, maybe, just maybe, if we had been encouraging our young people to have a sexual ethic from the beginning, instead of trying so hard to do the opposite of what the left was doing with being permissive, you know, hey, we're going to prove that we're so self-controlled because our kids can wait until they're 30 to get married. Our kids can wait until they're 27 to get married. Isn't that great? Look how successful they are. Well, that too, that, that too is of a piece with this progressive mindset rather than taking into account that human nature is such as it is and that God gave us the institution of marriage. What we've done by being intentionally confused, on purpose confused about, let's say, welfare programs, social welfare, government spending, taxing the quote-unquote rich, guilt-tripping Americans into giving or into voting for people who were going to take their money and actuate, self-actualize with every idea that popped into their heads, telling young people that a good Christian is going to go to college and be successful on those lines, and otherwise you're sinning against God. I was literally told this. You're sinning against God to throw away your potential like that. Um, No. But even the conservatives have told their kids, yeah, you have to go to college in order to get respect. We have to have the respect of men like Tim Keller, people like that at our workplace or in our neighborhood or in our church. They have to respect us. We have to play the games on their terms. No, 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 no. We think we know better, and it, it is a slippery slope. I mean, go back several decades and these government programs clearly have done harm in the long run. The government starts underwriting college education loans. So then universities and colleges, they just jack the tuition up and up and up and up and up because the supply and the demand dynamics are such and such. And because money is no object. If this is what it takes to be successful, if this is what it takes to have a quote-unquote ministry to go and take out $120,000 worth of debt for a four-year degree for you, and then your future wife, she'll also have another $120,000. So between the two of you, you're at a quarter million dollars worth of debt because we've told you that's what it takes. And oh, by the way, you're going to have to also wait until you're through all of your childbearing years for the most part. And you'll probably both have to still work. So you'll send your kids to public schools where they will also be little missionaries. It's, it's perverse. It's not to be assumed that maintaining a pluralistic democracy along these lines is more sacred somehow than being faithful to God and his word. That's 
the divide. That's the debate between the progressives like Tim Keller and conservatives like me. It isn't to say that you don't have any freedom, any wiggle room whatsoever. It's not to be legalistic that you must get married at 20 years old like I did. No, no, no. But it is to say we we should not be misleading our kids, and we shouldn't be legalistic in the opposite way either. We get legalistic about unity all the while, conveniently or foolishly, naively, missing out on who it is that is conveniently defining unity so that they win the debates. So they end up taking the moral high ground. It's virtue signaling. I say unity, and I make you do what I want. I say unity, and I make you be quiet. I define free speech as me getting to say what I want, but if you talk back to me, then that's a travesty. Or as Winston Churchill once said, some people's idea of free speech is that they are free to say what they like, but if anyone says anything back, that is an outrage. And I quote, well, that's the left. That's the left inside the church and outside the church. Free speech is they get to talk. Hey, we should be able to debate these things. What they mean is they want to be intentionally confused about things that are actually very clear. What they don't mean by debate is that you get to actually debate them. What they mean is they get to debate you on any claims that you make until you tuck tail and run. Until you learn that they're the ones who are going to assert dominance here. As the most humble, right? They'll, They'll conceal it in humble bragging. I am the most humble person who's ever needed God's grace. And that, you know, like the kingdom is defined by who needs God's grace the most. And of course, you know, the greatest in the kingdom is going to be the one who admits that they need God's grace the most. And I, you know, I just have to say, I need God's grace more than all of you. Okay, so what you're really saying, if I read between the lines here, let me let me break it down. Let me interpret. What you're really saying is you are actually the greatest. Hmm. It doesn't actually seem very humble. It actually seems fairly disingenuous. The test for whether you really mean it in humility or whether this was you trying to make a power play, a kind of grandstanding, a kind of asserting dominance, the test is... If I push back on that and I say, well, hey, wait a second. I think I see some wickedness and some pride and some ego and some selfishness, some vanity and selfish ambition. I I think I see some of that in how you're approaching this topic and how you're relating to the people around you. How do you react? Do you react angrily? Do you get indignant? Do you say things like Tim Keller? I recently wrote about how churches should not destroy unity or fellowship over political differences. The replies show that many American evangelicals have no coherent understanding of how to relate the Bible to politics. Yeah, that's very unifying. Good job. Really good. Really so good and super convicting. (laughs) Way to uh, rebuild our unity and fellowship by saying that Many American evangelicals have no coherent understanding of how to relate the Bible to politics. It's a one-way street to you. You get to say that, but if someone says that to you, if someone says you have no coherent understanding of how to relate the Bible to politics, that's an outrage. Your idea of a debate is that 
you win. Because again, it's the Saul Alinsky principle. Any means are justified depending on the ends. No thanks. No thanks. I'll pass. Mm -mm. I got to leave it there, though. It is a Saturday morning. Just to reiterate, if I could jump in a time machine and go back and talk with 20-year-old me, I would not say you should wait to get married. I think odds are high that several of the guys I know my age who are still unmarried might go back to 20-year-old them and advise a little more of aggressive, a little more of an aggressive approach to pursuing a gal they knew back then. Just a guess. Whichever it happens to be, I would encourage you young people, if you're listening, really, really dig into God's word. Don't take it from me. Definitely don't take it from Tim Keller. Let God be true and every man a liar. We should be Bereans about these things. And the Bereans, I was just telling my middle school group Wednesday night, the Berean Jews mentioned in Acts, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, are said to have been a more noble sort than those of Thessalonica. Even though the Jews of Thessalonica, who became Christians, the Christians in Thessalonica are very much encouraged. They're given some pretty significant props when Paul writes to them, First and Second Thessalonians. But the Berean Jews were more noble because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether Paul and Barnabas were telling them the truth about the Messiah. And that's a great example for us. We should be searching the scriptures daily to see whether the things that Garrett is telling us are true. We should be searching the scriptures daily to see whether the things that Tim Keller is telling us are true. That goes for the pastor in your neighborhood. It goes for the trendy Christian literature on your shelf. That goes for the popular Christian artist on your radio station. You should be searching the scriptures. Get into God's word. Let that test what is or is not clear, true, helpful, good, beautiful, and then act accordingly. Meditate on those things. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.